Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen. We appreciate your time. Appreciate that there are lots of podcasts you could be listening to, and you're listening to this one. This is episode 36 of The Next Track. Today, we thought we'd chat a little about music consumption in an era of media fragmentation. I feel silly talking like that, but there's really no other way of saying that. Um, to help us out, I'm happy to welcome back our good friend, Andy Doe. Hi, it's great to be on the show again. This week, we wanted to take a bird's eye view of the music industry. Never before has music been so easy to consume, yet are people listening to more music? Are they buying more music? We've reached a time of media fragmentation that is such that you can get music in a hundred ways now, but are people appreciating music any differently? Is it the same? Is it is it the same amount of music coming out of more spigots? Before we started recording, Doug and I were talking about our, I guess our formative musical years, right? The late 70s, because we're both about the same age. And we had FM radio, you had AM radio, you had record stores, you could buy records and eight track tapes and cassettes weren't yet a thing. You could listen to music in, well, clubs if you went to clubs. We had jukeboxes. Sure, we'd go to the International House of Pancakes and put a dime in the jukebox on the table and you'd get some songs or jukeboxes in a bar. But we didn't have that many different sources of music. We were much more limited. In New York, we had a lot of radio stations compared to some cities, but there wasn't that much of a variety. And now we have streaming and we have downloads and we have YouTube and we have iTunes purchases and we have all these things. What about you, Andy? You weren't born back then. You didn't. You haven't seen all these changes firsthand. You've only seen them in, in the movies. How do you see this change in, in the market, particularly from your point of view as someone who's run record labels and who's consulted for artists who sell their music and, and stream it? Well, I was just listening to you doing this intro and thinking, how old you sound to me, even though you're not that much older than me. And that's, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting divide that comes. If you had already bought the bulk of your record collection when the internet came along, because you know, as, as, as we get older, our music consumption habits change, they solidify. Once, once you've got kids, your taste in music is, it's kind of mostly set. We have other things to, to do with our time. And if if you were in your teens or 20s, if you didn't have children when the internet came along and downloading and streaming happened, then I think you have a completely different view of the music world. It's fair to say that I look at my son, he's 26 years old. He's grown up sort of the internet came along when he was about 10 years old, five, 10 years old. So he's known it for most of his life. He did buy CDs back in the day and he doesn't buy them anymore. It's true that his approach to music is different, yet it is somewhat influenced by my approach to music because he grew up with all that music around him, which has enabled him to explore things he might not have explored otherwise. Not that he's a deadhead, but it turns out that a guitarist that he really likes who plays sort of improvised electronic combination of music said in an interview last year that he was a fan of the Grateful Dead and all of a sudden my son wanted me to send him some Grateful Dead music to check out because he was curious enough to want to know what these influences are and all that but but I think what's more interesting is to look at the vast majority of people who only use music as wallpaper and 
to think that they still represent a large share of music consumption, even though it's extremely passive. It's not, Doug is, is going to use his favorite term. What do you call people like you and me, Doug? Well, we are the acquisitors. We're people who like to acquire uh, the music that we listen to. And even before recorded music, there were acquisitors, people who collected sheet music, for example. But more recently, say within the past 40 or 50 years, people who wanted to take music with them also had to become acquisitors because the only way to have portable music was to purchase a CD or a cassette or digital files to play on a portable device. But now that physical media is generally no longer required to listen to music portably, because we have streaming, the number of acquisitors has dropped. But there will always be a percentage of music listeners who are the, the, the hardcore acquisitors because having it as a possession is as important as just being able to listen to it. Here's an interesting number to think about. Talking with someone at Apple one day, I asked what the average size library is on an iPhone or an iOS device. You know, Apple does, if, unless you expressly turn it off, they get data from your devices and so they know what you're doing. They know how big your iTunes library is and how much is on your phone. They said that the average is about 3,000 tracks. Now, 3,000 tracks seems like a pretty high average, actually, when you think about it. But this was after Apple Music had already begun. So this is including people who are adding stuff to their library from Apple Music. You know, in, in the bell curve of of music listeners, you, you and I, the acquisitors, are at the very high end on the right. And then the people who don't care about music are on the left. But if that 3,000 is around the middle, that's not a lot, but it's not nothing either. Well. I think when you when you look at the the changing ratio of of your kind of mindless zombie consumer listener and your your acquisitors, you you have to remember that that there are the core acquisitors who always wanted to collect and possess music. And when the iPod came along, they were the first people to buy the iPod. They loved it. It meant that they could carry initially a thousand songs and then 10,000 songs and then a hundred thousand songs in their pocket. And they really, really liked that. But other people who'd been quite passively listening to music found this device to be superior to radio in a number of ways. And so you had, you had lots of relatively passive listeners becoming active users of the iPod and engaging with it enough to fill it up and listen to music as they as they traveled around and they kind of replaced their radio listening with their iPod listening. And when, when the iPod had grown in popularity to the point where most of the acquisitors had an iPod and then the lots of relatively passive users were also buying it, then they discovered that uh, the, the shuffle function was one of the most popular functions on the iPod. And that was the point at which the iPod shuffle was, was, released and then over time you have streaming services come along which are much more like radio you've got pandora you've got spotify um you've got ways in which you can have music and listen to it without having to acquire it and then your acquisitors get to get to fork off this way and the the more passive radio listeners get to enjoy music on a, on a different platform we've seen the same thing happen with vinyl right it used to be that the CD represented kind of the one the one compromise between convenience and physical object. And when digital comes along, suddenly everybody who just wants the music gets the digital version of the music. And the only people who are buying the physical product are people who really, really like the physical product. And you see vinyl sales go through the roof because 
the only people buying physical products are collectors, and collectors like vinyl. The collectors like an object that's larger. You know, when you get the CDs in your shelf, they're all just plastic and they look very impersonal and they're small because we grew up, us being older than you, we grew up staring at album artwork like, you know, King Crimson's in the Court of the Crimson King or ELP's Brain Salad Surgery, all those great covers. Yeah, you're, you're old now. You need large print. I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when you look at those on a CD uh, insert, you need a magnifying glass to get the same effect. So vinyl is more for the object, I think, than the music. One, one thing that's really interesting now is that so we did go through a period where music sales plummeted because people were downloading music illegally. It's, it's undeniable. Even though the surveys show that the more people buy music, the more they download, it doesn't matter. There are lots of people downloading music who never bought music. So the record companies, in order to counter that, have come up with all these other ways of getting people exposed to music. You get all these talent shows like American Idol. You get a lot more product placement would you call it product placement for music what's the term andy when you get a song put into a tv sync sync licensing where you get a you get a song on the soundtrack of a show and and yeah there have been a a few shows like uh like the oc like gray's anatomy which became a a brand in music curation all of their own yeah so so you find that the record companies are fragmenting the landscape themselves in order to try and get their feet in the door to get more sales for certain things. And I, and I would assume sync licensing is worth like a couple hundred thousand album sales, right? To get a song synced to a TV episode. It depends on the show. But if it's a, if it's a really music heavy show with a big audience, then it, it, can, it can make an artist's whole career, certainly. Yeah. Back in the day, uh, we had Saturday Night Live that had live musical guests. And this was one way that bands could get exposed to the public. I don't remember talk shows back then, whether they had a lot of music or not. I know in the 50s they did. I remember seeing some old Johnny Carson things, obviously, Ed Sullivan. Um, I really didn't watch late night TV in the 70s. You got to remember, there were, musical variety shows were very popular from the 50s onward. I mean, there was once a time in the 60s and 70s where they'd create a show around anybody. You'd had Andy Williams and uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, Sonny and Cher had a show. Mac Davis. The Glenn Campbell show. Yeah. The Captain and Tennille had one. Yeah. There were a lot of music shows on television with a lot of variety. Um, the Who had a famous appearance on The Smothers Brothers. I know Frank Zappa appeared on Mike Douglas. Um, not to mention American Bandstand and Soul Train and Shindig. But still, these are all big pipes that only provided a limited number of artists with maximum exposure. Yeah, because there were only three networks. Yeah, well, of course, what, what that meant was that with relatively few opportunities to get an artist on TV, relatively few TV shows that would have artists on TV, and relatively few other ways to reach a very large audience, there wasn't a great deal of diversity in, in the acts that saw those big pieces of promotion. And today, there are different huge pieces of of promotion like you know getting on getting on the home pages of the big music services getting uh sync on a big tv show or movie these opportunities are still reserved for relatively few top selling artists but there are lots of other opportunities to to get some exposure and to begin to build up an audience. It seems that there are, are far more other opportunities for small exposure. 
and fewer opportunities for large exposure. Because if you look at something like American Idol, these are not artists who have made a name for themselves yet. The whole point of that show is for the producers of the show to retain 50% of their profits for their entire careers because they have created those artists. You wouldn't find, you know, the equivalent of The Who on American Idol today. On the other hand, you have a million other ways that people are exposing their music, whether they put it on SoundCloud or they put it on YouTube or everything else. So th this is the real fragmentation that instead, instead of a few pipes and a few artists, now you've got a gazillion pipes and it's hard for any artist to get noticed. That's absolutely true. It's also true that at the same time as all of this has happened, it's become a huge amount less expensive and less complicated to record and release an album in the first place. So um, recording equipment is less expensive. You can make a very high quality recording on a home computer. You can create your own label and put out your record for next to no investment. And, and all of those changes mean that there's been a huge increase in the number of products available to a to a global audience and the worst of those products is really really bad but the best of those products are are wonderful and occasionally you do see an independent artist begin begin to bubble up at least to the point where they get noticed and in some way those intellectual property assets get acquired or become controlled by some massive company generally before they get the opportunity to uh, to rise all the way to the top. Since it's so easy to make an album, are there more musicians making albums? I mean, when I was young, a bunch of friends and I, we'd get together and play music and stuff. And I remember we once rented a few hours of studio time just to, you know, see what it was like to go in a studio and record a couple of songs. And we recorded a couple of songs. It was fun. It wasn't great. But I think if we did have the ability that we had now to just have some microphones and a laptop and record something, we probably would have done it more seriously. It is a lot easier now. Um, I did. I was a semi-professional musician in my late teens and early 20s, and uh, I played in bands that we needed to record demos in order to get work, and it was very difficult to arrange studio time. Nowadays, it's so much easier to just... Uh, you know, record in GarageBand and have a demo ready that day, upload it to YouTube almost immediately. But does that make better music? I mean, look at literature for 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 a similar example. People can write a book and sell it on Amazon as an ebook relatively easily, but that doesn't mean that these are necessarily good books and that there's now a glut of really bad ebooks. Well, there's, there's a huge proportion of uh, the apps, the books, and the songs available on these online stores which have never been purchased by anybody there's there's a lot of total crap out there um there's also this whole other tier of stuff which doesn't even make it into the stores like the the effort that went into creating it didn't seem like it was worth the extra effort to get it to get it in the store and some of this stuff ends up on youtube some of this stuff ends up on blogs as pdfs as um as audio files, as snippets of code you can download. So, th and this applies to books, to apps, and and music equally. That that whereas once global distribution had a sort of a a, a flaw to it, where below this level you weren't really doing it. Now it's it's a lot it's a lot fuzzier. If I go back and remember the record stores where I used to shop, so I grew up in Queens. We had a couple of record stores nearby one of them was very small by a subway station i'm guessing he had 
500 albums, 1,000 albums at most. And then there was a bigger store. It was owned by the same guy a few blocks away. And, okay, he had 3,000 albums in the store, right? A pretty decent-sized store. That's about the size of my CD collection. Well, that's smaller than my CD collection. But now think about it. You go on Apple Music or Spotify and you have 40 million tracks. So let's say at 10 per album, which is probably a little bit high, that means there are 4 million albums available for a click, if you find them, of course. In a way, there's too much choice for things to bubble up to the top, to use your expression earlier. If you remember that book that Chris Anderson Wired wrote a few years ago about the long tail saying that, well, everyone's going to sell stuff because the long tail is going to sell even if it's in a small amount, it's going to sell. It turns out that he was totally wrong. Yeah, and then he wrote this other book called Free about how it was that if you couldn't make money out of the long tail, you should try giving stuff away. And um, I don't know whether or not he wrote a follow-up book to that entitled <laughs> Paying People to Take Stuff That No One Wants. But that... that that's the argument that comes next. But but the point is that if you go to Apple Music right now and you look at the news section and you look at every single genre, you'll get maybe 500 albums. You'll get maybe, you know, 400 artists or whatever. You can't choose among 40 million tracks or 4 million albums. You can't choose anything. So you're back in the same funnel where all you get is what the people who want you to listen to music want you to listen to. In other words, it's it's the record labels who pay to get this positioning on, on the iTunes store, for example, or on Apple Music, or they're there because they're up in the charts. But once you get past the top 100 artists, it's very hard to find anything. Yeah. I, in, a, in a past life, I was one of the people who had to listen to the new releases and figure out what got featured on iTunes. And it's it's a tough job because you're getting sent just in just in classical music there are more new releases there is more music being released than it is possible to listen to in the time scale in which it's being released right there's like 36 hours worth of new recordings released every 24 hours so you you couldn't possibly listen to it all and and you would not want to listen to it all and this is this is this is in a genre which is relatively difficult to make a to make a record um, so there is there is a lot of crap, and so we end up in this in this world where where aggregation and curation are becoming increasingly valuable valuable tools. But as the curation and recommendation is being done increasingly by algorithms or by by faceless worker drones like me, who were namelessly producing recommendations for for a huge multinational company um, it becomes difficult to see the process behind that that curation and so we we frequently don't even don't even realize it's happening and you know we, we saw this thing uh, last year over the curation of Facebook's trending uh, trending panel list thing on the in the sidebar. Uh, where where it was revealed that, that there were actually people fiddling with this and then the people who fiddled with it got fired and then they made the algorithm do it and then the algorithm was appalling at it and then they had to hire people to do it again. There's a huge amount of this going on with the recommendations that, that, uh, that all the services we use make. Uh, but it's necessary to make sense of 
to, to make sense of the, the vast quantity of content. I think it's important as consumers that we ask questions and think carefully about what exactly are these recommendations and, and who is making them. I think it's there's always been some kind of overlord curation. I mean, if you think about listening to the radio, Kirk and I were talking about this earlier. Even though we had different radio stations in the cities that we grew up in, we were still listening to the same music. I mean, his radio stations played the music that my radio stations played. Somebody up there is deciding what music is going to be played. Um, it's not like radio stations say, let's spin this record and, and see if our listeners like it. That's not how it works. It's most record sales and record promotion is, is, is done from the top down and in coordination with, with record companies and, and radio stations and music directors and things like that. And Facebook came under so much criticism for the way it ran its news algorithm. I'm wondering why we don't examine the way music is coming to us from the top down as well. Well, I mean, in in a way, we did. There were a variety of systems that led to the radio stations that you and Kirk listened to playing essentially the same music. Um, there was a time when it was essentially market based. It was it was payola, right? And then and then you had after after payola was outlawed, you had uh, you had all of the complex ways of hiding payola. Then you had Clear Channel owning all the radio stations and making uh, kind of doing corporate programming, playlisting. Then you have the consolidation of all of the record companies so that really there's only four or five people as a programmer that you're talking to on a daily basis. And and when they ask you a favor, they're asking the same favor of your, your colleagues at other stations. And over time, this became closer and closer to an algorithm. And just as the, just as the big companies were able to manipulate uh, the editorial decisions of of some poorly paid people in radio stations. So they're able to manipulate the algorithms because they're able to reverse engineer them. They're able to put pressure on the companies that write the algorithms in the first place. And and so you, you'll, you'll see big companies as each each business model matures, you'll see big companies figuring out how to, how to control them. But a lot of what we're seeing here comes down to ratings driven programming. It was, ratings-driven programming, um, when it was corporate playlisting, when they did listening tests in theatres full of people and asked them to rate the songs they were listening to, it's ratings-driven programming when you look at the number of people who switch off when they played a song online. And and uh, this ratings-driven editorial decisions are a very dangerous trend in in my opinion, because it, it used to be, if you look at look at newspapers, it used to be that newspapers had no idea which bits of the paper got read. And so what a newspaper editor would have to try to do is, is write a newspaper that was interesting, was informative, was filled with good quality journalism. They would, they would try to make it good and create things that, that, they imagine people would like. And even if they knew that not everyone would like it, that some people would like this and some people would like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And some people would really like this, and this would make up for the fact that 90% of people wouldn't care about it. But but then you get the internet, you're able to see not just how many people click on the headline, but how many people read past the third paragraph. And suddenly you know what it is 
people like. You know what it is people listen to. And it turns out that what people like is way crappier than you ever imagined people would like. What what people will listen to and, and look at is... The public is considerably less discerning than anybody had seriously imagined. And so what, what you get as a result of this is a, a huge explosion in lowest common denominator coverage. But you also see that the, the whittling away of those things which a very small number of people liked but really liked. And, and this is why we see you know, classical music critics getting, getting fired from newspapers across, across the, the US where, where they still have a few. Um, because because they've looked at the stats and the stats say that hardly anybody reads this stuff. It doesn't tell you what the people who read it go on to do. It doesn't tell you how valuable this is to your brand. It just gives you a score. And on the basis of that rather crude score, big decisions get made. Big decisions get made about the music people here. Big decisions get made about the... Uh, the, about people's jobs and about the the future strategies of whole media empires and that's that's scary but again this comes down to the fact that most people don't care about music for them it's background for them it's something to have on so they don't feel lonely it's something to put on in the car to not have to listen to the cars next to them it's them it's something to dance to in a club it's something to you know just to be musical wallpaper. So it really doesn't matter what they listen to. I, I think what's more serious today is that music has become so industrialized that these people find it difficult to escape from those three Swedish guys and discover something new. I think we have to think about we have to think about the the music market and the competition in the in and around the music market as broader than just being something that's about music. Because because when I was a teenager, music was a huge part of what a teenager did with their leisure time. It was a lifestyle thing. Right. It was, it was a lifestyle thing. It was a way in which you identified yourself. It was a way of choosing, choosing a tribe to join. When you were a teenager, I suspect that was even more so when, oh, yeah. when uh, you go back another 10 years, there was almost nothing else for you to spend your disposable income on. Um, as, as a teenager in the UK or in the, in the US. If, if you go to pre-VCR days, you know, I remember 1977 when the Star Wars movie came out. It was probably in the local movie theater for about six months, and me and my friends, we went to see it a half a dozen times. Even the newest Star Wars movie here, it's going to be out of the theaters in four weeks to make room for something else because there are so many movies that are being produced and, and distributed. So, yeah, we didn't have anything to spend money on other than music and movies and maybe sports if you were into sports. Right, but now you've got apps. Well, you've got apps, you've got your phone, you've got Netflix, you've got all of your monthly contracts. And this is something, when people talk about the decline of sales in music, they often leave out the fact that everyone is paying for their phone every month, for the cost of the phone, for the phone contract, for their internet, for their Netflix, for their Amazon Prime, but if you add up all these things people are paying for monthly, add a streaming music service, for instance, there's not much left for them to spend money on anything else. In other words, just to have the basics, which is your phone, your internet, your Netflix, Amazon, and your streaming music, that's taking up a lot of your disposable income, and there's not that much left. 
Right. And when we talk about disintermediation in the music industry, about removing the middlemen between the artist and the consumer, I think we tend to forget that what we've inserted in there, having taken out the labels and the physical distributors and the record stores, uh, what we've inserted is telecoms companies and mobile phone companies and these hardware manufacturers who are selling you very, very short life uh, products which, are, which have obsolescence built into them. So at the end of the day, I guess you could say we haven't really gotten rid of the middleman. We've just gotten a new middleman. I guess at the end of the day, what, we, what we're seeing is that every time there's a change in the media marketplace, there's, there are opportunities arise. And small, small artists, uh, small companies find innovative ways to exploit that. And generally... Those ideas get copied, stolen, stomped on by big companies. But what change does every time it arises is present opportunities for the little guy. And if if that's what you're interested in, if, like me, that's, that's what you do, then that's the thing you have to keep your eye on and keep hoping for more change because that's where the opportunity is. And, and for everybody else... If you're if you're willing to be a passenger or a spectator, then sit back and watch because it will always be a good show. Thank you very much, Andy, for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Before we get to presenting our next tracks, I want to remind you that if you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to investigate or talk about or explore, let us know. We have a contact form at the website, thenexttrack.com. Just fill it out, send it in, and... We'll put it in the big barrel of email that we get. Uh, Kirk, what is your next track? My next track this week is from a band that I've liked for a long time, and it's it's the kind of band that I listen to their music for a couple months, and then I stop, and then six or eight months later, I pull out another album. It's Pink Floyd, a band that I've been listening to since way back in the day. And lately, I've been listening to Animals, their 1978 release. Animals has always been the sort of Pink Floyd album that I never really liked a lot, but that I really like it a lot when I remember to put it on. It's like not the one that I think of listening to, but when I do listen to it, it's like, yeah, this is really good. You know, it's kind of, it's a concept album and it's political and it's got some great guitar solos and it's well-produced and it's got good sound. And it's just a nice album. It's not, it doesn't have the the sort of spaciness of, of Dark Side of the Moon. It doesn't have the, the, the heavy blues guitar of, of Wish You Were Here. And I think those three albums together are, you know, the, the core of Pink Floyd's music and, and they're all wonderful. The first time I visited London in 1982, one of the things I did was walk along the Thames until I got to the Battersea Power Station. That's that big building that's on the cover of the Animals album. Because with that album, and it's such an, an interesting looking building. Th this is, I think, the underrated Pink Floyd album of the, the, the sort of good period of Pink Floyd. And when I, whenever I listen to this, I find that I really like it and I'll listen to it like a half a dozen times in a row. So I was listening to it a couple of days ago a few times and I put it on again this morning and I'll put it on again tomorrow a couple of times when I work. So Pink Floyd Animals, 1978, great album. What about you, Doug? What's your next track? My next track is Greens from the Garden by Corey Harris. Corey Harris is a musician who works in the medium of blues, but really he's incorporated a lot of world music into his style, no more so than in Greens from the Garden, which has styles and instrumentation from West Africa and the Caribbean, New Orleans, and places like that. It's all in there. 
This is his third album. It came out in 1999. I bought the CD on Amazon as soon as I heard it reviewed on NPR. The first track, Basehead, just completely blew me away. Each track is like um, like a little experiment to see if a certain style can be melded with another, and it really seems sometimes like some of these songs were recorded on a field recorder. There's really a, a lack of a studio presence or anything like that. In fact, there are some brief tracks that have snippets of conversation obviously recorded on location, and that sort of lends a documentary feel to the album. But I love it for the variety and the vitality in all the songs. I'm a big Corey Harris fan anyway, but this probably is my favorite album. Greens from the Garden is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.